Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Andre Wright. Andre is the co-founder and CEO of Adonai Transitional Housing, located in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome, Andre. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast series. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I am excited to learn about your organization out in Arizona. I think before we dive into your programs and services, though, I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself and your own personal background and what was your journey to bring you to Adonai? Yeah, so I was, I graduated from GCU in about 20 or around 2016. And during my time there, I was in a internship working with youth or at-risk youth in the South Phoenix area. And so met a guy named Dave who essentially got me plugged into what his organization was doing. And he was kind of getting me exposure to the youth that essentially are homeless where they're couch surfing. And then he also kind of explained to me that there was a context for aged out youth. And I had (laughs) no context for that and even know what that was and did a little bit of research and understood that there was a ton of need for housing and resources for these youth. So yes, I did that for about two years. And then I slowly transitioned into a residential treatment facility called the Youth Development Institute. And that company primarily worked with youth with sexually maladaptive behaviors and also just general mental health behaviors. So schizophrenia, different things like that. And so most of those youth were in the foster care system. And so that gave me a ton of experience. It gave me a wide variety of just kind of exposure to different skills or the opportunity to gain certain skills and working with this population. And so did that also for two years and slowly transitioned into creating my first company, which was Ascend Phoenix, which was a nonprofit for youth aging out of the foster care system. And so did that for about five years and then slowly transitioned into what I'm doing now, which is Ad and I. The Ascend Phoenix program, is that still around? No. So we dissolved that and rolled that into Ad and I. So. Oh, okay. And when was that? We recently shut that down last year in 2022. Oh, so Ad and I is a newer program. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. So essentially with Ad and I's, we kind of took the model that I created with Ascend and then transitioned as a new entity under Ad and I to essentially get a state contract. So. Gotcha. It sounds like your background brought you into a situation where you were working with youth with more serious challenges than I imagine a lot of folks have encountered. You mentioned schizophrenia, for example. That must be a really valuable experience, I think, going into your own program. Not to say that you necessarily would work with those youth, but I think just having that exposure and being aware of the possibilities of these more serious challenges would be a benefit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the exposure has helped a ton in terms of the youth that we're serving today within Adonai. But yeah, working at YDI just gave a ton of exposure and learning just what are the real problems that I think some of these youth face prior to even getting into residential treatment facility because you know you hear the stories of youth in their past that 
they've had traumatic experiences or they might have used drugs, hard drugs at early ages that have put them in a context of where they have certain illnesses such as schizophrenia and things like that. So the exposure has definitely helped in terms of the youth that we're serving today with Adonai. Yeah. So Adonai is a newer program. And we were talking earlier about pronounce Adonai or Adonai. So I think either is okay, right? For the listeners. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying I used to sing in choirs and it would always be Adonai, right? Adonai. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but you're saying Adonai, but both are accurate for those who are listening. Yes. So first of all, the name, it's an unusual name. Maybe some people have never encountered it before. What does it mean? Yeah. So Adonai is essentially the Hebrew word for Lord. And so Adonai is a Christian organization. Me, along with the other founders, are followers of Jesus. And so that is essentially the meaning. And you know, we want to, as we do things, we want our organization to primarily be focused on serving the Lord and serving youth. And so that's where essentially it comes from. All right. And you just said you opened, you know, under this new organization, Adonai, you kind of folded the Ascend Phoenix into it. So who are the youth that you serve? Where are they coming from? In other words, I guess, what are the criteria to become a youth in your program? Yeah. So we have a contract with DCS, who is the Arizona Department of Child Safety, to provide services for youth between the ages of 18 to 21 that are in the extended foster care program. And so it's essentially a program that DCS has for youth that are either, I think they have to work 80 hours a month, or they have to be enrolled in some form of school or some sort of education to be eligible for the program. And so this transitional housing program, specifically within that broader extended foster care term, is kind of more for youth that just need a little bit more support in terms of their transitional experience. That's essentially where we're getting the majority of our youth from is referrals, primarily from DCS. Okay. Was Ascend Phoenix a transitional housing program as well? Yes. Yeah, so Ascend Phoenix was a transitional housing program, but we weren't necessarily contracted with DCS because this contract is new. To my understanding, this is new federal funding. So I think it's kind of coming across multiple different states. But when Ascend Phoenix was around, there wasn't any type of contracts that were available. And so we primarily were funded just by my pockets and, <laughs> you know, just yeah. donations. So I would say it gave a lot of experience and just, you know, how to operate on thin margins and, you know, just really mm -hmm. building their relationships with youth and making an impact from there. <laughs> okay. But you also had the framework for a transitional housing program. I imagine you had housing of some kind. What's the housing that you have? Is it homes that are in neighborhoods? Is it an apartment building on your own property? What, what does that look like? Yes. Yeah, so currently we have five homes across the valley. One of the housing units is an apartment or apartment unit within a complex that we own. We believe that for our model that it's best to really, I guess, implement like a housing option in terms of trying to spread out, you know, the youth and their experience because certain youth may, you know, they may be connected to a different part of the city and may work well there as opposed to kind of just having a big kind of compound or apartment complex where we're serving all the youth all together there. I would say just for our operations, it's also a little bit easier when, you know, there's problems that particularly arise in the homes and that way it's not spread 
across kind of the whole population that we're serving. It's really just specific and isolated to that one house. So, so yeah, so right now we have five homes. We're serving about 22 kids. And we just got our contract in December. So we're growing pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, I would say. Now, let me ask you about this apartment. You own the complex? Yes. Or you own the apartment like in New York or you can own apartments? Yeah, so we own the complex. It's a, essentially, it's a it's two triplexes. So there's a total of six units. So the other five units are rented out to other more of your like traditional tenants. And then we have one unit that is allocated specifically for our aged out program. Now that's an interesting model because it seems now you have income from the other renters that you turn around and utilize for the program. Yep. And do they know they're renting from a nonprofit? Yeah. So essentially the renters are, I mean, we don't necessarily get into the weeds of just for, you know, confidentiality reasons about <laughs> where each kind of tenant is kind of coming from or just their demographic. But sure. But yeah, we essentially do, we kind of, you know, like to have that blended model just because it's easy for the youth to get that real world experience and working with and living with others and living within the community and, you know, knowing how to deal with neighbors and those types of situations. So it's a good opportunity for our youth to get that exposure. Right. You know, it's interesting because I also have, I have two duplexes that I own and manage. So I'm just thinking, you know, thinking a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, I, I'm. it's more in rural Pennsylvania. I don't know how many youth could possibly participate or get to my apartments. Transportation would be an issue. So are you in a location where there's public transportation, where the youth can get around easily? I'm thinking of the apartments, but also the houses. Yeah, that's a good question. So yes, we essentially, all of our housing is near public transportation, such as like bus stops and things like that. And then we also, they're expanding the light rail in Phoenix. They're expanding it down to central Phoenix, which is right where the majority of our homes are. And then as we continue to think about our approach and our model, we definitely want to expand. So we're trying to go statewide. So we're going to be expanding to Tucson, hopefully, and then also to Prescott and, and Flagstaff as well. And so our focus as we have homes within our organization that we own, but also as we partner with other kind of landlords and other people that really want to be involved in the space, our hope is that we can continue to identify properties that have good public transportation and just have more support and access for the youth because, you know, just as they're connected to things in the city, that makes it a lot easier for them to kind of get on their feet. Yeah, it does. It really does. I've been to a couple different programs. I went to one in Florida where everything was in biking distance. Like they were near an area where there's a lot of like retail jobs and things like that. So the kids actually biked a lot of the times, but a couple of them also did have cars, but they didn't have the public transportation that some programs are blessed to have like you do. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I mean, some of our youth also are able to use bikes as well. But yeah, I think for just for what we've been operating under many of our youth, just because of the wonderful other organizations in Arizona that are in this space have been able to provide cars or access to getting money for cars and other things like that, like bikes and things like that. So it makes it a lot easier for some of these youth to really be independent. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. You just threw me back. I aged out of foster care myself. Oh, really? Yeah, I did. When I was a senior in high school, living with my foster parents, 
I got a job at a bakery at a grocery store that was within biking distance. And I did ride my bike, one, because it was close enough, two, because I wasn't about to ask my foster parents to get up at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> to wow. take me to work because it was like time to make the donuts kind of thing. You know, I had to go in and actually make the donuts. So I did ride my bike and my bike got me back and forth. So I was able to earn money. You say, I did not have a car until after college myself. Wow. Yeah. With the lack of transportation, it can be difficult to kind of get on your feet and, you know, you're trying to figure out how to get to and from work. <laughs> and then it's like the majority of your money is being allocated towards transportation costs and not towards saving and, you know, the next steps up. I get <laughs> mm-hmm. how yeah. it can just make things a little difficult, you know, if you're not provided with that early on. Yeah, absolutely. It can. You know, first of all, Flagstaff, beautiful. I love Flagstaff. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So by all means, I want you to expand there and I want to come out and visit. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, I love going to Flagstaff as well. I'm hoping to get a kind of a vacation home out there soon. But yeah, I think that Flagstaff is beautiful and it's just amazing what the state of Arizona has just from Phoenix to Flagstaff to Tucson and you know, the others, it's it's definitely beautiful. I agree completely. I love visiting Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) All right, back to the program. I did want to ask you, you said you had four homes and then one apartment complex. So how did you find these homes? We do have folks who are new and they're wanting to start a program, say a transitional housing program. And I think they might be a little bit at a loss is how do you even start to find the homes and get approval to have youth there in a program like yours, how did that work for you? And I realize that some of it may have been under the Ascend Phoenix name, but what did that look like for you? Maybe I can backtrack a little bit and turn to my story. So I was working for a guy named Brandon Hampton, who is a big time kind of real estate developer and property owner out here in Arizona. And so I came and worked for him for two years. That gave me a ton of exposure to knowing how to essentially identify and purchase real estate in areas. And so essentially I worked for him, was essentially working on the project management side of things and helping him do his apartment flips and things like that. And so so I had that relationship and had that experience there. And so he's now essentially a partner with me on this new entity. And so that's how I was essentially able to kind of cheat a little bit in terms of growing really (laughs) fast. So yeah. I don't think building partnerships is cheating. I think it's (laughs) wise. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But yeah, but essentially I would say, I think identifying people like him and, and it's kind of, it's a other, it's him and he has two other brothers that, that essentially, you know, are working together with me on this, but essentially just work. I think I would recommend that if you're able to find landlords that are kind of in the area and, you know, are really passionate about doing ethical things from a real estate perspective, but, you know, are also passionate about working with vulnerable populations. I think it's a good context to explain the opportunity that you have essentially to not only help a specific niche and a particular demographic, but also to, you know, make sure that the tenants and that the landlords are, and that it's pretty attractive for them to houses youth. And so for us, I think it was a pretty, you know, sweet partnership because I really care about the youth and so do they, but I can primarily help in terms of responding to just some of the needs within the house and kind of looking at the property and 
because I had that previous exposure, it gives me a context to say, hey, like I know when problems are going to arise or I know who to call when things are going to be broken or when things are broken. So yeah, so I would just recommend that, you know, if people are getting in a space, I would try to see if you can find a landlord, maybe if that's a family friend or, you know, someone that you know of that particularly does real estate and, you know, they're kind of buying and fixing and flipping properties. But if you don't, I think that there's a little bit more complicated ways to find fix and flippers. But, you know, I would say if you're driving around neighborhoods and you see projects being renovated, I think that it's probably could be helpful to maybe stop by and see who's facilitating everything and who ultimately is owning the renovation of that home. Yeah. You know, it's, I think the question is, you know, where do you go? You could drive by and how do you find the landlord's name and contact information? It's a little bit challenging. There are forums online for landlords, and that might be an opportunity to find an online forum to, you know, just say, hey, we're thinking of starting a program in this area. Is anybody interested in talking with me about this? You might be able to get some interest through those types of forums. I know there's a site called mrlandlord.com with the mrlandlord.com. There's a question and answer forum type of thing they have on there. That might be a place you could go. But I think building those partnerships with landlords is a fantastic idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like I said, I think it's important too to just kind of share, kind of share your passion. I think that that's ultimately what kind of makes the world go around, you know, and I think it's important to share your passion and also just share kind of what you're thinking. And, you know, I think it's a good context to have a discussion about really how to serve the needs of these youth. Right. Exactly. Based on what you're sharing, we do have a podcast that's going to be topic-focused on the different types of transitional housing programs that are out there. I think I'm going to follow up with you, Andre, and see if you'd be willing to participate if you can, because I think you have some experience with different models that would be valuable to that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to jump on that. All right. Wonderful. I just made a note to follow up with you. All right. So you said that these youth are part of the extended foster care program in the state, correct? Yes. Is that all your program is now is really this extended foster care under the funding that you're getting? In other words, you don't have any side services that you offer. Yeah, it's a good question. So we are primarily focused on that right now, but we are trying to work with DCS to particularly serve the demographic that doesn't qualify for extended foster care. So that's a project that we're working on and it'll kind of get into just kind of getting into servicing youth that have more of your mental health needs and then also just alternative options to housing. So, but as of now, we are primarily focused with the youth that are in the extended foster care program, but we are working on another project to extend the capacity for us to house youth. Okay. There's so many needs out there, particularly if you're in a city population. I don't know exactly what the numbers are of youth in need, but when you're in a city, the num- not to say that you know rural, the numbers aren't there, but of course there will be many more youth that need those types of services. Yeah, in Arizona, it's about a thousand youth that age out every year. So, you know, it's almost roughly two per day. So, the need for housing and the need for supportive transitional services are, you know, it's definitely there. So, right. All right. Well, let's talk about the staff and or volunteers that you have supporting the youth in these houses and apartment. What does your staff structure look like? How do you train them? Do you have volunteers? Who are your people, in other words? 
Yeah. So right now we have essentially three amazing staff that kind of help facilitate along with myself to help facilitate the program. And so we have staff that essentially are available from 8 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, but we are trying to increase support in the evenings and the weekends just because we are just kind of responding more to the operational issues. But but yeah, our staff essentially are trained. DCS has them go through a training called, I think it's Youth Rise. So it's a two-day training. And then we do some internal training about how to work with youth and how to be youth-driven and how to be responsive. And so and so, yeah, so our youth get trained on how to work with youth. They also get trained on life skills. So we use the TILT program. What was that called? It's called the TIP. Sorry, I think it's called the TIP, Transition into Independence Program. Have you heard of that before? I haven't. Well, not that I know of. Yeah. So it's a curriculum that we are starting to implement, but essentially it just kind of talks about just a transition into independence for youth that are aging out. And does it do purchase this or do you get it from the state? Yeah, you can purchase it. Oh, okay. Yep. Yep. I'm going to put that as a resource on the podcast site. Yeah, I could definitely send you the list for that, but it's called the tip model. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Thanks. Yep. But yeah, but essentially we train our staff on that. And the kind of the main role for our staff is just to make sure that the youth have access to resources and that they are helping them with their transition. So as they're thinking about jobs or as they're thinking about school, our staff are really geared to get behind those youth. And I would say they're kind of like, they kind of operate as case managers and property managers at the same time. So there's issues that arise at the house, you know, with things being broken, you know, there's a little bit more access and a faster response to getting on those issues. But then at the same time, as youth kind of have their initial case managers under DCS, they also have a case manager with our program to provide really specific and intentional support where we're able to provide and spend more time with them throughout the week. Okay. So who fixes things in the apartment <laughs> or houses? <laughs> because I'm wondering, do your staff learn how to you know, do minor repairs of things or do you have a, like a, a fix-it type of company that comes in and does that? handiwork. Yeah. So we actually have, we have full-time maintenance guys on our team that essentially come in and fix things. So my partners have over, I want to say probably a hundred properties within Phoenix. And so we essentially are able to get their, (laughs) their experience and their skills and utilize them when things come up in the house to essentially fix things. So sometimes youth kind of jump on it, like especially some of our boys' homes, they just kind of try to fix it themselves. And so that definitely helps. But but for you know some of the major things, we definitely have a maintenance team that's able to come in and, and tackle those issues. You know, I see it as an interesting opportunity to teach youth some of these basic things. I, again, mentioned I'm a landlord and I have replaced front porch lights, done the wiring for that. I'm going to be replacing some old thermostats coming up soon. So, you know, basic wiring, basic plumbing. I fixed a tub trip lever not too long ago. But what a great opportunity to teach youth some of this basic stuff so that when they're in their own place, that they can do some of this. Do you do any of that kind of teaching? Yeah, it's funny you said that. So our youth, like I said, especially our boys' homes are more interested in this kind of stuff. But yeah, they are when, you know, our maintenance team, you essentially get everything scheduled. 
So the boys typically are aware of what time or that scheduled time that the maintenance team is going to come by. And they're able to also get that exposure, that experience to fix things. And so part of it too is all of our homes come newly renovated. So that's another thing about our program. I probably should have mentioned, but all of our homes come newly renovated. So there's two things with that. One, there's not a lot of issues up front. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, right. But two, youth are able to get that exposure from a renovation standpoint when you know you're renovating bathrooms and you're doing new floors and painting and installing new countertops and things like that. And so essentially we're moving towards, I mean, we've only been operating under this new contract for about four months now, but we're trying to start to build a context for youth to even participate in some of those renovations. And like, as they're building new home or as we're building or renovating new homes to onboard more youth and grow our capacity, we would love to have some of our current youth, you know, jump into that and also not only learn, but also make money. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yep. That's a great idea. Yep. So, but yeah, but all of our homes become newly renovated. So, you know, I think it's a perfect opportunity to create some of those kind of vocational type of trainings, you know, getting some of these youth into trades and things like that. I'm a big proponent of that, the trades. It's an area where if you go into it, you will always have a job, it seems. If you apply yourself and work hard, there's such a need for people in the trades right now that it just seems like a guaranteed job. If you go to college, you know, again, college education is great, not knocking it, but it isn't necessarily a guarantee. Yep. Yep. I always encourage people and I point people to Mike Rowe because Mike Rowe has a foundation and they actually have scholarships for young people who are going into the trades. So you never know, right? Could be a scholarship they could apply to. Wow. Yeah. I think it's called Mike Rowe Works Foundation. Wow. Yeah. I have to look into that. Yeah. I think I would echo exactly what you're saying that in a sense that I think that youth should be looking into trades and things like that. And, you know, if we look at the statistics of what's the likelihood of youth being able to graduate from college, I think that in one hand or one sense, I would say it's not that we don't want to discourage youth from trying to go to college, but I would also say that doesn't have to be the same goal for everyone. And, you know, maybe vocational trades are the best option for you and probably align more of, of, you know, getting you to that kind of $25 an hour, $35 an hour, $45 an hour type of job that you're probably looking for as you're going to college. So I think, yeah, to your point, there's a huge need and I think that there's a lot of missed opportunity by not looking towards trades. Yes. Yes, I agree completely. The way that you've structured your program, it gives them kind of a taste, right, of what that could look like. Yep. Yep. And could kind of pique their interest, especially for young people who like to work with their hands. And even young, you know, I want to say young ladies, young ladies who go into the trades, I think that, again, it's still an opportunity for young women and you might very well have larger companies that are looking to, you know, to have that representation from women in their organization. So you might even be hired quicker. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> not That's not a guarantee, but I'm just guessing. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's definitely an idea there. All right. So the young people come into your program. What is it that they experience? Now, they're getting a place to live, right? I gather that. And they have support. 
but is there a formal curriculum that they go through as part of your program? You know, in a curriculum in a broad sense, is there, you know, do they have to go through training on a regular basis? Are they connected with a mentor? What is it that the young people are experiencing as part of your program? Essentially, when youth come to our program, just as you mentioned, yes, they do get housing. We also provide mentorship with them, but I would probably say, you know, maybe just digging into what's kind of expected of all the youth is we meet with the youth every other week to really focus in and kind of have a one-on-one conversation with them. And then in terms of a program, we're slowly trying to implement the TIP model that I mentioned before, the transition into independence model. And so all of our youth, we kind of, because each youth is different and we see the needs of youth differently, our primary focus is relationships. Out of those relationships, we think that if we're able to train our staff and really invest into our staff having access to resources and understanding their needs and behaviors and just kind of the trajectory of where these youth you know, could end up, we think that that is our model and is what has fit best. You know, once they enter into our program, of course, they get housing, but then we get them set up and connected to some of our other partners that help out with jobs and, you know, career development along with employment assistance as well. So there's a program out here called Keys to Success that is essentially helps youth get on their feet with employment and just kind of vocational support. And so we essentially just get them connected to our partners and they kind of tackle that. But For our staff, they're primarily trained and focused to build relationships with youth and spend more one-on-one time and really try to adapt and see what are those needs. And then we respond accordingly. And so, like I said, we have programs that we have and that we follow, but we have a, I would probably say a more flex kind of structure as it pertains to our youth. And we do have ways that we hold them accountable and essentially those as our staff meets with them on a biweekly basis, there's a list of questions and things that we're tracking and as it pertains to their mental health, as it pertains to their friendships and relationships outside of the home and outside of what they're provided by us, but also what's going on with school and what's going on with work. So our young adult care coordinators have essentially those kind of case notes to stay on top of these youth and at least, I guess, to say on top of the issues that kind of arise in the youth and making sure that they're on track to help them get to become independent. Yeah, relationships is so key. It's in research, study after study, they find that having a supportive adult relationship is a key factor in their success in aging out of foster care and becoming independent. Yep, yep. It's so important. In fact, our next podcast, which should be posted in the next couple of days, is our first topic podcast. And we talked about building relationships with youth. So we had three organizations come in and we talked about what they do to help build those relationships. So we got a variety of different perspectives. Yeah, I'd be, I'm looking forward to that because I'm curious to hear how they approach it. Because we, like I said, we also do, our primary focus is relationships. And we think that that's where the impact is going to be made best. Because again, that's where you can really understand the needs of the youth and they can understand you and build that trust and that creates the context to really make the impact and help them develop the skills and process those situations as things kind of come about. Right. Well, let me ask this. When they're done with the extended foster care with the state, that's when they have to leave your housing? With the current contract, 
The state doesn't allow us to house youth past 21. I believe that they're working on a context to where that's going to expand to the age of 24 very soon. So I expect that to be something within the next kind of two years. You mean their extended foster care program is going to expand? Yes. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. So those services could potentially, yeah, expand to 24. So we could, you know, and I would say in a perfect world that we have the capacity to serve youth who need it up until 24 or for five to six years. Because I think the reality is most young adults, (laughs) once they turn 18, aren't ready for adulthood and getting everything going on their own. So yeah, but right now, as I mentioned before, we're working on another program that would, or another project that would essentially give us the context and ability to serve youth past that 21 demographic already. So we're trying to beat the state and maybe even help kind of pioneer and help drive the conversation on that in terms of working with them. And they're already familiar in terms of what we're thinking through, but that other program essentially could house, serve, and provide those resources for youth past the age of 21. Hmm. Okay. I've heard of a couple of other states that have already extended their extended foster care to a later age beyond 21. So it seems like this might be getting a little traction out there across the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, and it just kind of makes sense. Like I said, I think most young adults are, it's going to take time for them to kind of get on their feet and kind of experience adulthood and really feel confident to be independent. And so I think it's probably a little bit more fair to have more realistic expectations for these youth that potentially may, I mean, like I said, I'm coming from a more therapeutic, you know, mental health background, but I think that for some of those youth that are processing those issues along with trying to find housing and trying to get a job, you know, it's a combination to make it very difficult for a youth to be independent, right? You know, between the ages of 18 and 21, it might just take more time. So I'm excited and going to be definitely trying to rally as best I can to support the needs for services and, you know, just the allocation for state and federal funds to increase past that 21 age for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Being an advocate for that is really important. I am with you on that. Now, let me ask you this. I know I want to spend a few minutes talking about how the foster care system can improve supporting these young people. We're talking about one way, right? Extend, expand their extended foster care. But before we dig into some more ideas, you had mentioned that you're a Christian-based organization. So do you provide some kind of spiritual support or activities for young people? And is it required that they also align with the Christian beliefs? Well, how does that work? Because again, there might be some organizations out there or new organizations trying to figure all of that out for themselves. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So for us with our convictions, those are very important to us. And so we, in terms of our approach, I think just to get to it off the bat, we do not require that our youth participate in any kind of church services or spiritual services. It's more, again, it's based on relationships and that's the way that we think is best to approach the conversation around our convictions and I know that there are certain organizations that kind of do require that, but for us, we say, hey, let's build a relationship. You know, our convictions do expect of us to kind of share about our faith and share about our Christian beliefs. But we think that at minimum that we are going to provide housing and do good work and care about youth as they're aging out. I mean, that's what we believe that the Bible explicitly talks about and that 
every Christian should be doing that. And then in terms of sharing the gospel, again, we think that the best context for that is through relationships and really just to kind of understand their situation. Because a lot of youth, they just, they aren't particularly concerned about spirituality or concerned about church or Christianity and those things. They're kind of just like, hey, I just want (laughs) to, I just want to focus on being housed and getting on my feet and you know, still processing my trauma. And so spirituality and those things are kind of the last thing that they're thinking about. But yeah, but I would say for us, we've had good experiences with that. And we've had certain youth come to church. And, you know, we're also really huge in recruiting church volunteers to come in and mentor these youth. And so that's kind of how we essentially approach it. And it's more adaptive in that sense. So that's how we would, you know, or that's how we've been kind of approaching a conversation around a spirituality and just blending that with our program. Okay. And do youth opt into your program? So in other words, do they they find out about your approach and they're like, yeah, I'm good with that. And then they opt in or are they assigned to your program? Yeah, that's a good question. So every youth that's in our pro or that's in this extended foster care program, they can choose because they're adults, they can choose where they want to stay. So gotcha. To my understanding right now, I think we have, as of today, uh, about 40 to 50% of all placements within this program. So yeah, so we kind of have a large, you know, kind of chunk in terms of the capacity that DCS is kind of allocating for these homes. But, but yeah, the youth, it seems like they like what we're doing with our approach. So because they do have the option to choose where they want to stay. Okay. All right. That's great. Now. Let's spend a few minutes talking about the foster care system in general. Do you have any other ideas about how the foster care system, you know, system statewide, you know, federal funding, anything local, what can be done to better prepare young people for aging out of foster care into adulthood? We mentioned one already is a longer time for support in the extended foster care program, but what other ideas might you have? So I think I would like to say that. I think that the foster care system as a whole, I think is actually trying to do the best that it can. So I know that there's, <laughs> you know, maybe challenges from certain sides about there's different, yeah, challenges about how the foster care system is responding. But I'm actually, from my perspective, I would actually be in support and, you know, just the people that I've met and just knowing about the work that they're doing from the state side, I think they're doing the best that they can. And I would say that they're doing a good job. So I have a different perspective, but I would say, I think I would like to see more support and just more support and increase for mental health services as youth are trying to eat or youth are aging out. And then also just giving youth better access to housing. So that seems like those two are the number one needs for youth as they're aging out. And like I said, not all of the youth qualify for extended foster care. But there's also a ton of youth that also need housing and also have a need for mental health services. And so that's what kind of I was mentioning before that Ad and I that we're working on a separate project that will later be announced here in a couple months, but it's a separate project that'll really be able to tackle the access to mental health services and also just more access to housing as well. The housing is such a challenge. You know, you have so many young people that don't have a place to go. And may or may not be ready to get their own place, even with a roommate, you know, because I hear, well, why don't they just get a roommate and then they can both pay for it? Well, you know, there's a lot of learning that goes into that life skills wise before you can make that work. 
Yep. So I think more attention to housing is critical. And as far as mental health services, yes, it's something that we haven't really covered much in our podcast series, but it's something that I want to. I want to get into that more in the future. I definitely think that, I mean, you kind of mentioned this earlier, that there seems to be a need or seems to be a kind of response from a national level to really expand some of these services. And I know HUD recently came out with an additional like $30 million in federal funding for youth with their foster youth initiative program, where they can kind of get like the section eight vouchers. I don't know if you've heard of that before. Yes. So yeah, so they're increasing more funding for that. But I think even with that, and that's what we as an organization are kind of getting ahead of the curve on is really partnering with housing authorities to identify where some of these youth are being placed. Because most of these youth qualify for the one bedroom kind of housing vouchers wherever they are. And so to my understanding, that should be, that's just kind of a national kind of approach or expectation there. And so I think that it's not good for youth to be alone as you're processing that. So if they're 18 and they have a voucher and they don't have the relationships, they don't have the support, then it just creates a context to for them to have a lack of resources really to transition into independence well. So yeah, so we're working, you know, I think that there is definitely more funding coming through kind of the pipeline for that and just more support. But we are trying to get ahead of those things and trying to find and identify those youth. So that way they, I mean, youth, I think in a perfect world for Ad and I and the other projects that we're working on, I think we would like to see that youth really have the relationships and the supportive services that they need from ages 18 all the way to 26 and even further if needed. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that one of the problems is so many young people in foster care don't know what resources are available to them, which is a huge breakdown in communication. And, you know, I see opportunities to leverage homeless shelters, for example, to provide information to youth who have aged out of foster care. So many are homeless to either get them back into extended foster care or maybe connected with some kind of transitional housing program. I think that is a great opportunity. I'm not sure what it would look like, how it would be rolled out, but that's, you know, talk about getting the youth when they most need it. Homeless shelters, they get to know these kids, right? And I think that would be a great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good idea. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah. See, so we're fixing problems already here. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, unfortunately, I think we're at the end of our time. But what I'd like to do is give you an opportunity, if you could, to share your website address if anybody wanted to donate or get in touch with you. How do they do that? Yeah. So our website pretty much can answer all those questions. But essentially, we can be found at www.adonai, that's A-D-O-N-A-I-A-Z.com. And so that's essentially a place to reach out and get connected to more of what we're doing and hear more about our program. Fantastic. I hope you get some donations out of this, but also one of the reasons we do these podcasts is, is connect people who work with these young people across the country. So maybe you'll get a call or two from folks who are listening to this podcast to find out more about your program, because that kind of networking and benchmarking is also important. We need to break down these geographic barriers, share best practices so that we can better serve young people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Andre, for participating in the podcast. I really enjoyed learning about your program, your organization, and what you do for young people out in Arizona. I wish you all the best as you expand. It sounds like you're growing fast and you've got some great ideas. And so I'm going to certainly track how things are going. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Lynn. You're welcome. All right. For those who have listened to the podcast to the very end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can find them at agingoutinstitute.org and then just look for the podcast link for this year. You'll see the latest one then, but we also have some podcast recordings from past years you can click to as well. So thank you very much. And we'll look forward to sharing more information in our next podcast, which I mentioned is focused on helping young people build those strong relationships with a caring, supportive adult. Until then, 